Alright, tonight we're going to continue our study. <clears throat> First time we've done it on Wednesday here at the church in a while due to my malady and shingles. But uh, <clears throat> we'll be looking at a continuation of what we taught Sunday uh, because I didn't get anywhere near through. But before we do, as is our custom, let's remember the application of 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. We recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may, might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, <clears throat> Sunday on the 6th of June, I taught in part the doctrine of capitalism versus balderdash, as I like to call it. Uh, that is the alternative to capitalism. And tonight I want to finish that doctrine. So we'll do some review, and then we'll begin new material on page 3. First, however, we need to use one First John 1, 9, which we did just do, because the teaching will be done by God the Holy Spirit, and I just present, and the Holy Spirit teaches, but He will not teach if you, of course, have unconfessed sin in your life. So it's most important that we do that each time. Alright, capitalism is an economic system that is based on private ownership of the means of production and the creation of goods or services for profit based on the needs of a competitive market. And of course this is found in scripture by comparing things that we find uh, in our scripture that indicate uh, private property that indicate the protection of private property, etc. And particularly the first, the four divine institutions, volition or choice, you have a choice and you make choices and you're responsible for your choices. So volition. And then of course, uh, marriage. And then of course, family. And then lastly, nationalism. Internationalism is bad. Nationalism is good according to the scripture. So maximum freedom for the individual is God's optimum. In our body of theology, that is Christian theology, we call freedom our first divine institution. Volition. Choice. You have a choice to put together a business practice and implement it and make money. Uh, and... Uh, you have the choice to not to do that. So the right of private property and protection of property rights is repeatedly established in Scripture. And we saw that Sunday in Exodus chapter 20, verses 15, 16, and 17, and then in chapter 22, verse 2. Free enterprise is God's plan for His client nation. A client nation is a nation that has a pivot of very positive believers, uh, and they, of course, support the nation. And we have a minimum of spinoff that is of negative people. 
and that is a, a client nation, as we like to call it, one that God loves and supports and helps. All right, a capitalistic system will produce excess and make for maximum resources for charity. And you'll remember last week or Sunday, we went over the various scriptures that spoke of of uh, helping others and how that is done by use of the law, the Mosaic law. And it was a very interesting study, certainly for me, uh, but uh, you're welcome to take a look at it again. It's on the internet and it's on the podcast. My son-in-law was, uh, I didn't think he would have it on when I waked up this morning, but apparently when he got back from the trip that he and his wife took, my daughter, and uh, got it on. So it's on both the internet and it's on also the podcast. Point five, Scripture provides insight into what causes Poverty. In the following verses, you will find numerous uses of the English word sluggard or slothful. And that word in the Hebrew is otzel. And it means idle, habitually lazy, lethargic, lean, or indolent. And scripture indicates a failure to work results in a failure to provide for one's future. And we looked at Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. And then we looked at chapter 13, verse 4, and chapter 19, verse 15 in the book of Proverbs. Wickedness or evil, and we call in this church reversionism. We're actually borrowing a themism. Colonel R.B. Theme, former pastor of the Baraka Bible Church. It's an excellent word because reversionism says you're reverting back to where you were. You're reverting back to having no doctrine. So you are a reversionist. A good term, though you won't find it in the dictionary. So reversionism is the product of a refusal to apply the protocol of God. As a general rule, God makes it tough on people, negative toward his word. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 3 said that. 28 verse 20 also says the same. A drunkard or glutton will experience poverty. We saw in Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. Being industrious is a means of avoiding poverty. Foolish people pursuing impractical fantasies also make for poverty, says Proverbs 28:19. A slothful man is lazy and as a result often poor, says Proverbs 19, verse 24. All right, the indolent, that is in the Old Testament economy, were often lazy and as a result, they quite frequently ended up as slaves. Proverbs 12.24 And I mentioned Sunday that you can go to the internet and find the doctrine of slavery and find out what the Bible teaches about slavery. And one of the things that's talked about in that particular series of teachings was that when someone got in a position where they couldn't support their family, they could elect to become a slave. And if they knew someone who was a good slave owner, they would actually become a slave and work for him and he would take care of their family. It's a very interesting study and I would recommend folks read it and study it. All right, so the habitually lazy or very often wasteful, we saw in Proverbs 12, 27, 
The slothful person will suffer hunger, says Proverbs 19.15. The person who seeks a fast profit often finds poverty. The same is true for the miser, the person who's always looking to keep their money and not helping others and to keep their money and not giving it away. And the Bible makes that clear that that person very often uh, has little, little, but the person who gives a lot away often has a lot. All right, uh, and that primarily can be found in our doctrine of the poor. And there is a doctrine of the poor, again, on the internet, that you can take a look at as one of Pastor Merritt's study books. I have a number of study books on there. Uh, and even entire books that have been taught and have been categorized and and uh, listed. Alright, the habitual lazy then are often wasteful. Proverbs 12.27 The slothful person will suffer hunger. Proverbs 19.15 The person who seeks a fast profit often finds poverty. The same is true for the miser. Alright, no matter how hard we try to eliminate poverty... These efforts will prove futile. The poor will always be with us. This does not mean that we should refuse to perform what God commands with reference to assisting those less fortunate. But in Matthew 23.11 and Deuteronomy 23.11, we find uh, that uh, poverty is going to always be with us until the Lord Jesus comes back. And we studied that uh, Sunday, as you'll remember. All right, Jesus' prediction of pervasive and everlasting poverty was part of a rebuke to the world's greatest liberal, Judas Iscariot. John 12, 4-6, Jesus said, I will not always be with you, but the poor you will always have with you. So Jesus' prediction of pervasive and everlasting poverty was part of, again, of a rebuke. Alright, it is the Lord who makes the poor and the rich, therefore it is He who can eradicate poverty, uh, as well as bestow affluence, says Proverbs 75 verses 7 through 8. He said, it is the Lord who sets them up and it's the Lord who brings them down. And promotion cometh from the Lord, says Proverbs 75 verses 7 through 8. Alright, charity for the truly destitute is a bona fide function for the establishment. Every, <coughs> excuse me, every third year, a tithe designated for the Levite priests and the poor of the land was paid to the treasury, says Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, as we saw last week. So God's law says every third year you'll have a, an opportunity to set aside working in the field and leaving it for the the poor. All right, uh, there is no authorization in Scripture for assisting the poor, however, in other lands. Internationalism is always evil. There is one exception. We are to evangelize the entire world. However, each national entity entity is responsible for what occurs within its national boundaries. And I pointed out uh, last Sunday that this means if you have a nation that says, missionaries stay out, 
we should respect that and stay out. But uh, God, of course, made that clear again in Scripture as I showed you. And there are folks who don't comply with that and the first thing you know, they get in trouble and they go to jail. And we wonder why they've been imprisoned because they went into a country that said, don't witness here. And that's their responsibility. That's what they have. They are... Remember the fourth divine institution? Nationalism. God loves nationalism because Satan loves internationalism. Alright, there's no authorization in Scripture then for assisting the poor in other lands. Internationalism is always evil. Alright, nationalism is one of the divine institutions. It's the last of the divine institutions. Remember volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. It is Satan who weakens the nation. And we saw that in Isaiah 14, 12. Also in Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll find a description of Satan. Uh, And Satan in Isaiah 14, 12 says, He is the one who weakens the nations. He's a big internationalist. And you see how that is being portrayed in the devil's world today. Alright, there is a special blessing for those who help the poor, by the way. Notice Proverbs 22.9. A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Proverbs 41.1-2. 1 and a 2. Now we've finished the review. What I just covered was covered on Sunday. Now we have new material And what I was about to do when I looked at the clock and the clock indicated I should stop. All right. Point one, new material. Even when government exceeds its authority and eschews establishment principles, we are to heed their mandates. In other words, we are to submit ourselves to the authorities. For example, if the government steals from the rich by requiring more than a 10% across-the-board income tax, because that's what the Bible indicates should happen, an across-the-board 10% income tax, whereas we, of course, like in America, a progressive, as it's called, income tax, and foolishly throws money at every problem. Sounds like the United States, doesn't it? Including the eradication of world poverty. What are we to do? We are to react with faithful submission. So the epistles seem to demand that each local church address poverty. It is, however, a matter uniquely the province of individuals within a local church. For example, benevolent funds in a church are to be established within each local church to care for the indigent. Notice 1 Timothy 5, 3, and 4. And we've studied 1 Timothy, and you may recall we noted we are to give proper recognition to those widows, widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren. This is a very interesting verse. You may recall when we studied it. Now, if a widow has children or grandchildren, 
these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents this is pleasing to God says the scripture so that's 1 Timothy 5.3 and 5.4 now it should be noted that all of the assistance is based on a free will offering without pressure never Never do we find instruction to help those who can and will not work. In fact, quite the contrary, there is an admonition not to help those who refuse to work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. In fact, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Let's look at a problem passage and apply what we learn from that problem passage. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his positions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, this is a verse in which all of those who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus was upon the earth, He told them to go to Galilee and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they went there. And they actually thought that Christ would come back immediately and set up His kingdom and they would not have any more problems because He would set a kingdom up on earth. They had no idea about the dispensation chart, which you can see right here on the board, and uh, that there's a lot of things that have got that have to happen before Christ comes back at His second advent and does what they thought He was going to do immediately. Now that's the real problem. And not only did those people there who were underlings, if you will, but the leaders didn't. Peter didn't know. He taught the craziest sermon you ever heard over there in the book of Acts early on. And that's what causes it to be a prop, a major problem. Alright, let's go on now. I just kind of said a little bit of background for what we're going to see as far as the writing is concerned in the lesson plan. So there are those who teach this passage authorizes socialism, communism, liberalism, as the Christian's paradigm. In other words, what we should do as Christians. But certainly not as the case. In other words, they were there. There were numerous people there in Jerusalem. And they were all waiting for Jesus to come back. And Peter told them, He's coming back soon. And some of them were speaking in tongues. And he said, See, this speaking in tongues is the sign that Jesus is about to come back. Well, Jesus is not about to come back, Peter. You're talking through your hat. Because there's got to be. See, here's the Jewish age. And they were right here at the beginning of the church age. And they didn't have any idea there's going to be a church age. There's going to be a Jewish age. There's going to be a tribulation. And then Christ will come back. They had no idea. And so they were all wanting to just stay there. And so they did. They stayed there and they stayed there. And the first thing you know, they didn't have any money. And we have the story, of course, of Barnabas going to Cyprus and selling some property and coming back and and uh, giving the money out to various people so they could eat. 
because they all thought Jesus is coming back right away. Well, He didn't come back and He didn't promise He'd come back, but they didn't know that because they didn't have God the Holy Spirit at that time indwelling all of them to teach them or pastor teachers who knew of the coming church age, the seven-year tribulation, the second advent, and then the millennium when Christ would come back. So that's why it becomes a problem passage because they think, what's going on here? Jesus hadn't come back. And they are all getting hungry because they have a problem. Alright, here we go. There are those who teach this passage authorizes socialism, communism, liberalism as the Christian's paradigm. So nothing could be further from the truth in the light of a categorical study. The ultimate welfare state cannot tolerate private property. As earlier noted in Exodus 20, verse 15, 17, and 22, the Bible very clearly establishes the right of its citizens to own private property. Socialism and communism in its purest form eliminate private property. Exodus 20.15, for example, you shall not steal, S-T-E-A-L. And doesn't that indicate somebody owns something? Because you shall not steal from somebody who owns something. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Or Exodus 22.2, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. All of this indicates somebody owned something and somebody was trying to get it from them. Alright, Acts 4.32 is a clear, that's our verse, the problem verse noted, Acts 4.32 is clear is a clear display of Christian charity and does not imply state control. For the misguided, I would simply ask the question, where is the state mentioned in the following passages? And I'm going to read 4.32, 4.33, and 4.34, and 4.35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they shared everything they had. With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So clearly, God's protocol, both in the Old and the New Testament, urged its citizens to protect property rights. Notice Matthew twelve twenty nine. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Alright, the welfare state is often based on class hatred and a desire to transfer wealth from the rich 
to the poor by means of government force. However, God is not an egalitarian in an egalitarian. In other words, he doesn't believe in equality. Heaven will never be a place of equality. There will always be the greatest and the least in heaven based upon what you did with Bible doctrine. How do we know that? We'll look at Jeremiah 31-34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor. This is a description, by the way, of heaven after the Lord Jesus comes back. And uh, or you die and uh, you go to be with the Lord. But specifically, this is talking about the millennium when Christ is ruling on the earth. But it's true. If you died tomorrow, the same principles would apply. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. Notice, highlighted for you, from the least, the least of them to the greatest. In other words, no equality in heaven. They'll be the least and they'll be the greatest, declares the Lord. And then he says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That is what is a description in part of the new covenant. You know, the four covenants that we talk about, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and uh, the uh, new covenant is the last covenant. Um, so let's go on. Hebrews 8.11 is also a description of what was called out in Jeremiah 31 where we have the least and the greatest. Least and the greatest. And then to make sure that everybody understands it didn't go away just because it's in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. And here's what the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews says. He repeats that. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all allow me Know me from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, it's going to be the same whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. It's a fact. There's this talking about what's going to happen in the millennium. All right, now let's go on. 3.7. Such community of goods as set forth in Acts 4.32 was not compulsory, but voluntary. And as I said, the names, the word state doesn't appear there. It was a way for the Christian to eliminate special needs and act of voluntary sharing. Keep in mind that Jerusalem was overflowing with many Jewish people and Gentile converts coming from all over the world to worship during Passover and those feasts immediately following the Passover. Many of these people had extended their stay beyond original plans because they were waiting for Christ to come back. And were in special financial need as they anxiously awaited the imminent return of their Messiah. Unfortunately, those gathered knew nothing of the disputations to come and their intercalations, or we could even say of the dispensations to come and their intercalation. In other words, their insertion. And the insertion is, of course, looked at in this chart and looked at in this chart. Here's a church age intercalated in between the Jewish two Jewish ages. 
All right. The manis, excuse me, the manifest needs of many precipitated a voluntary sharing in a time of great financial disparity. This occasion recorded for us in scripture is a beautiful display of oneness and caring among believers. It must be observed this sharing was voluntary on the part of each believer. And again, Acts 4.32, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. All the sharers were anticipating the Messiah's kingdom when, as our Lord had said repeatedly, there will be no need for material things. So they said, why not? Let me go to the bank and pull out all my money and buy food for all these folks and we're all here by the thousands waiting for Jesus to come back. And the teachings of Jesus was that there'll be no need for money in the millennium because everybody will have all that they need just like it is in heaven today. People in heaven are just laughing their fannies off at us down here suffering while they're having the biggest time ever and waiting for you to get there. Just keep that in mind. Uh, it's a great thing. My brother's up there. My mama's up there. My daddy's up there. And many of my old friends. Because I'm old. <laughs> All right, old people have old friends. All right, let's go on. So again, all the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. And all the sharers were anticipating the Messiah's kingdom when, as our Lord said repeatedly, there will be no need for material things. So they were misguided, these folks who had gathered together to wait for Jesus to come back immediately. And their teachers were misguided. They were misguided in their assumption that their Messiah was his promise, with his promised earthly kingdom, would soon return for Israel. After reviewing Peter's first and second sermons, it is clear these early church disciples had not learned of the church age, and I point to the church age, the age of grace, and its insertion between the first and the second uh, Jewish ages shown on our chart. All right, let me read that whole thing again, that whole paragraph 3.13. They were misguided in their assumption that their Messiah with his promised earthly kingdom would soon return for Israel. After reviewing Peter's first and second sermons there in the book of Acts, it is clear these early church disciples had not learned of the church age and its insertion, we often say intercalation, between the first and second advents of Jesus. Certainly the church age intercalation was not anticipated. They just didn't know. They weren't ready for it yet. This was a time of great persecution and great need. This act of sharing was restricted to the Jerusalem church and we find no further application in the epistles. All right, capitalism is taught in both the Old and New Testament, and big government is never prescribed. Now let's take a look at the nation's latest nonsense, which I've called balderdash. Point one, we face a near and present danger today. 
Many of our citizens, particularly our young people, have lost their minds. They are today being led by what I have chosen to call the religion of balderdash. A new movement has replaced common sense, a movement more subtle than its predecessor. Creeping communism, and that movement goes under various names. It is subtle and seemingly innocuous, but that's what makes it so dangerous. It is called international environmentalism. I don't want to dwell too long here, but listen to what a great but confused American has written about man and his relationship with the trees of the world. Most of the species unique to the rainforest are in imminent danger, partly because there is no one to speak up for them. The specific yew can be cut down in process to produce taxol, a raw material for cancer or a cancer-fighting drug. It seems an easy choice. Sacrifice the tree for a human life until one learns that three trees must be destroyed for each patient treated. Suddenly we must confront some tough questions. How important are the medical needs of future generations? Are those of us alive today entitled to cut down all these trees to extend the lives of a few of us? Even if it means this unique form of life will disappear forever. And that's an end of quote from Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance. It is my belief that world temperatures have been rising since Greenland ceased to be green and the Vikings decided to sail south. However, the notion that man has anything to do with this phenomena is balderdash. A balderdash anecdote will illustrate. A local local TV meteorologist in August of 2017 was frantic when he announced Austin was hotter than normal. In fact, Camp Camp Mabry, he said, recorded a record temperature. The former record was recorded in 1937. And then, thinking Austinites did some fact-checking and found that 1937 was equally hot. Interestingly, Austin in 1937 had a population of less than 19,000 and very little business activity as compared to 2017. Yet man was said to be the culprit, and man must put the brakes on prosperity and go live in the desert and eat cactus in some secluded cave if we are to solve the problem of warm summers. Please excuse my hyperbole. Another weird idea making the rounds today is the apotheosis of diversity, the love of diversity, even to the point of injuring the very people we are trying to help. Not only do we not help them by demanding they acculturate, but we provide them with excess for their failures, excuse me, excuses for their failures. This is the cruelest of sympathies. Statistical imbalances are seen today as evidence of discrimination even when reality would seem to prove otherwise. Minorities are taught that they fail, not because of reasons for which they may be responsible, but rather they are taught their failure is the system which is loaded with prejudice, warring against their success. 
To think that sharp people are not in the NBA because of discrimination is thought by most to be absurd, and we can all laugh about it. Thomas Sowell, a tall, brilliant African-American and senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, Stanford University, has written, Americans wouldn't tolerate inferior basketball on television just to accommodate short white people. To think that short white people not being in the NBA in proportion to their number in the general population is because of discrimination is laughable, and rightly so. And yet when applied to fields of study, jobs, test scores, etc., many jump to the conclusion that skewed statistical representation spells discrimination. And that ends the quote from good old Thomas Sowell. Now, if all of this sounds ludicrous, we must face the indisputable fact that government agencies have been born and continue to exist today based on such ill-thought logic. Though it is balderdash or malarkey to the thinking man, many people, including our lawmakers, take it quite seriously as the long arm of government reaches deep into the operation of family, school, business, and military organizations. Just think of the impact on our military when physical requirements are dumbed down in order to accommodate same-sex physical tests. All right, with that said, we're going to stop. And uh, that's little West Bank Church does not seek donations, nor do we authorize any business to solicit same on behalf of the church. It was something we had to put in there because there was... One particular company that said that uh, they would send a gift certificate to the West Bank Bible Church that you would call in and get their name and number as a roofing company. So we had to put something in there to indicate that we're not in the business of, of uh, the commercial business. We live on gifts from our members, and that's all. All right, with that said, we're going to close her out now with a prayer, but a brief invitation. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, if you are out there in the, in the computer land and you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do that right now because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. Keep in mind, Jesus came unto His own, Israel, but His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believed on His name. So as we have so often quoted God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son <clears throat> shall not see life. 
but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Jesus paid it all. Alright, I'll pause for just a moment and then I will give the benediction. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Now, I would ask that You would guide and direct us and I do ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in Your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.